This is The Space Shot, episode 249 for January 18th, 2018. Skynet, Kilopower, and Commercial Crew. Hey everyone, welcome to The Space Shot, your daily space history, pop culture, and news fix. I'm John Molnix. I've got a little bit of space history and a little pop culture to start out today's episode. On January 18, 1974, the British military's satellite Skynet-2A launched from Cape Canaveral. Don't worry, the satellite wasn't part of Skynet, the fictional evil AI system that nearly wipes out humanity in the Terminator movies. Skynet-2A didn't reach a stable orbit, and it burned up just a few days after launch. Now I've got some news. Later this morning, there's a news conference that's taking place at the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas. NASA representatives, people from the Los Alamos National Laboratory, the National Nuclear Security Administration, and the Nevada National Security Site will be discussing the Kilopower project. They aim to show that nuclear fission power systems can be used for human missions beyond low Earth orbit. Certain mission types will require higher energy outputs than are currently available for NASA missions, and nuclear fission represents a leap in power production for spacecraft. According to NASA, one pound of uranium fuel produces as much energy as roughly three million pounds of burnable coal. This high of an energy density is a great solution for missions where sunlight is limited or for where the crew would need more power. The kilopower reactor is small and uses a solid reactor core that's attached to heat pipes that transfer heat to Stirling engines. A Stirling engine uses the heat that's generated by the uranium to drive a piston, which is coupled with an alternator that then produces electricity. I'm linking to the full NASA article that details this system in the show notes. It sounds like an interesting technology that could be useful for future missions. NASA currently uses radioisotope thermoelectric generators, or RTGs, that use the decay of radioactive material to power thermocouples that provide electricity to a spacecraft. RTGs aren't capable of providing more than a few hundred watts, fine for a robotic spacecraft, but not enough for humans. I'm linking to the event page in the show notes, but by the time you listen to this episode, the event probably already ended. I'll have an update on the event as soon as I have a chance to watch it. Good morning. The subcommittee on space will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare recesses in the subcommittee at any time. Welcome to today's hearing entitled an update on NASA commercial crew systems development. I'd like to recognize myself for five minutes for an opening statement. The next few years will be busy for space exploration. NASA will be busy not only launching new systems, but they will be developing new business models, new contracting mechanisms, and new ways of approaching every facet of the challenge of expanding human presence beyond low Earth orbit. Engaging with commercial partners to meet exploration needs is part of that broader effort. I'm very eager to see how we can partner with the private sector to advance NASA's goals. That was Representative Brian Babin, a Republican from Texas, at yesterday's hearing on commercial crew systems development from the Subcommittee on Space. 
I listened to the hearing last night, and I want to include some of the audio from it here, as well as a few of my thoughts on a piece that was discussed in the hearing. Christina Chaplin, the Director of Acquisition and Sourcing Management for the U.S. Government Accountability Office, shared this in her opening statement. GAO has been assessing the progress of commercial crew for several years. In the past, we've also reviewed the commercial cargo program known as COTS, as well as NASA's human spaceflight programs. As you know, NASA's acquisition strategy on the commercial crew program is similar to the one it used on COTS, but different than every other spacecraft it has built for humans. For commercial crew, each contractor develops, owns, and operates its spaceflight systems. The contractors have access to NASA expertise and resources throughout the development process, but NASA engineers are not making design decisions, and NASA personnel are less involved in processing, testing, launching, and operating the crew transportation system. In the end, NASA will buy a crew transportation service, much like it does for the station's cargo. While Boeing and SpaceX are making significant progress, both continue to experience schedule delays. It has been three weeks since the program's original December 2017 goal to secure domestic access to the space station, yet neither contractor is yet to conduct a test flight. In fact, final certification dates have slipped to the first quarter of calendar year 2019, and we found that the program's own analysis indicates that certification is likely to slip into December 2019 for SpaceX and February 2020 for Boeing. Several factors could contribute to additional delays to the schedules presented here today. One, the contract It's not just Boeing and SpaceX that have been dealing with schedule slip. NASA is now expecting the first launch of the Space Launch System to slip into 2020. This goes to show that no matter who you are, developing new spaceflight systems isn't a quick and easy process. Later in the hearing, we heard from Representative Mo Brooks, who quoted from an article, which is actually an opinion piece, written by Lauren Thompson and published by Forbes. I'd like to now recognize the uh, gentleman from Alabama, Vice Chairman of our subcommittee, Mr. Brooks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to read from an article that was published earlier this week entitled Doubts About SpaceX Reliability Persist as Astronaut Missions Approach. It was in Forbes magazine. The author is Lauren Thompson, uh, January 15, 2018. And then I'm going to ask some uh, questions uh, in fairness so that we can have a response. Quote, in 2015, a Falcon 9 cargo mission to the International Space Station exploded minutes after launch, costing NASA $110 million. In 2016, an Israeli commercial satellite was destroyed on the ground when supposedly routine fueling procedures went dramatically awry. The launch pad was damaged by that explosion. In 2017, the latest version of the company's Merlin rocket engine blew up at a testing facility in Texas. And now SpaceX has begun 2018 with yet another catastrophe, referring to the billion-dollar uh, spy satellite that was uh, recently lost. Resuming the quote, maybe SpaceX really isn't responsible for the latest failure. The problem might have been caused by a payload adapter that Northrop Grumman, the company that had also built the lost satellite, supplied. But launch providers usually have final responsibility for tip-to-tail readiness before a rocket lifts off, and competitor ULA has successfully employed a variety of payload adapters to attach satellites to its rockets. 
The most worrisome aspect of this apparent pattern is that the same SpaceX launch vehicle will begin flight tests later this year to carry astronauts to the International Space Station. And I would add from another part of the article, quote, by way of comparison, United Launch Alliance, SpaceX's sole competitor in the military launch business, hasn't lost a single payload in 12 years and 124 emissions, end quote. While SpaceX is certainly not perfect with its launch record, it is disappointing to see what they have accomplished misrepresented in such a blatant way. What SpaceX and, to a lesser extent at this time, Blue Origin have accomplished over the past decade and a half is remarkable. Cherry-picking facts and trying to claim that the Falcon 9 is unreliable is disingenuous. Here's some historical context for the success rate of rocket launches. When President Kennedy set the goal of landing a human on the moon, by the end of the 1960s, NASA's success rate was at most 67%, depending on what year you look at, from the late 1950s to 1961. If you contrast that with SpaceX's Falcon 1 success rate, which was 40%, the company was still well within the range that NASA experienced at the beginning of its existence. The Falcon 1's performance wasn't exactly stellar. The first three missions were failures. The fourth and fifth flights of the Falcon 1 were successful, however, which showed that SpaceX had improved and continued to learn with each flight. Coincidentally, a four-leaf clover was put on the Falcon 1 Flight 4 patch, and since that flight was successful, the company now puts a four-leaf clover on all mission patches. Gotta love superstition and tradition. Now, back to the success rate for SpaceX. The Falcon 9 has successfully launched 46 out of 48 times. That's a success rate of 95.83%. Last year, the company stuck every landing of the Falcon 9 on missions that it was bringing it back. Expecting a new vehicle like the Falcon 9 to immediately have the success rate of a decades-old and very proven system like the Atlas V isn't realistic. If other legacy providers ever encounter mishaps in the future, I hope that Mr. Thompson is as forthcoming with scorn for them as he is with SpaceX. Dr. Hans Kerningsman, the Vice President of Build and Flight Reliability with SpaceX, was there to respond to the quotes that Representative Mo Brooks read from the opinion piece from Forbes. Uh, is mentioned in the Forbes magazine article, do you consider that to be consistent with a, quote, safe and reliable and affordable, end quote, launch record? Well, the, uh, the record in, in this um, paper needs to be adjusted um, for accuracy, I think. Um, Please do. That's why I'm giving the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, for once, the, um, the quoted test uh, incident in Texas uh, is actually was not an engine explosion. It was a, a fire on a test stand when the engine wasn't even running, um, and there was a, a um, test procedural error. It was, has nothing to do with the engine itself. Um, regarding, regarding Zoomer, we talked about this earlier. I can't, unfortunately, um, present any details. I can only reiterate that Falcon 9 did everything Falcon 9 was supposed to do. Um, so um, that, that, on that record, the other two incidents are, are a while back, and uh, we did learn our lessons on both of those, which is uh, obviously um, not, uh, 
not desirable, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a thing we learned and we improved the vehicle based on what we, uh, what we saw during those incidents into a much safer vehicle. We took, um, in both cases, we had investigations with uh, government partners, NASA, uh, FAA, uh, the Air Force, and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and we very openly discussed and, uh, and, and presented our corrective action and acted on them since then, um, which in my opinion makes us a much better vehicle. I do want to point out at the same time that Falcon 9 has actually characteristics that make it intrinsically safe. For example, it has a nine, engine, um, nine engines on the first stage. You can lose an engine and, and, uh, and make mission. You can actually lose two engines in some cases. Not that we ever, uh, not, not that I ever hoped that that will happen, but, um, but obviously that is an, a tremendous uh, guarantee. If you lose engines and other rockets, and uh, you know, I want to point out our engines are also domestically produced, um, then obviously, obviously this is much more difficult for, for other vehicles that have less engines. So that makes it safer. Um, I also pointed out reusability was already uh, is, is, a, is a great point to, um, to get the vehicles back and inspect them. That is something that we started doing um, uh, I think it was uh, not December this last year, but the year before. And ever since then, have we had a chance to inspect the vehicles and to make sure that we actually... Please, please I, have a, I have a follow-up question for Ms. Chaplin, and I gave you as oh, much time as I could. Sorry. And, and I appreciate your correcting the article as you understood it with Lauren Thompson, where you agree with two, you contest one, and then the other were still yet to be determined. But Ms. Chaplin... Um, how, do you, how does the GAO evaluate SpaceX's record or goal of safe and reliable and affordable? Well, on the, the issue of safety and the accidents mentioned today, I would just uh, remind people that DOD went through its own phase of having launch accidents um, right before their current program started, the Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicle. And once that started, they realized pretty quickly on that they had to add mission assurance. So they, they've had a lot of time to, in the past to learn from mistakes, to do the things that they need to do to, to get safety and mission assurance into the program. I, in my view, I think some of that learning is still going on here for the, the providers because they're new vehicles, they're new to the government arena and procedures, mission assurance, things like that are things they're going to be learning over time, and they've already learned quite a bit. I'm linking to the full hearing in the show notes, so if you've got about two hours and want to sit down and watch it, give it a go. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. If you do that, screenshot the review and send it to me at John Molnick's pretty much everywhere on the internet, and I'll send you a Space Shot sticker and a little thank you. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button, that way you don't miss any of the daily episodes. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. You can also connect with me on Facebook. Just search The Space Shot or click the link in the show notes. Tomorrow, Jiminy 2, New Horizons, and 250 episodes. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.